I'm John Hall. This is Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. Shiloh Shepard of Bow and Arrow in Albuquerque is my guest this week, and we're going to get into brewing with local ingredients, starting a brewery, and post-COVID expansions. But first, check out BeerEdge.com for articles, to sign up for the newsletter, and episodes of the Beer Edge podcast with Andy Crouch. And you know that we already have a Facebook group for This Week in Roush Beer, but now we have Twitter and Instagram, thanks to a push by Lou Bryson, and you can find smoky tweets and pictures at Beer on both of those sites. And of course, Beer Edge is on social media too. Please show it some love at The Beer Edge. Okay. It's cold here in the Northeast, and we've been buried in snow for the last few weeks, and of course it's bad all over, it seems, weather-wise. And so I've been thinking about warm climates, or at least warmer climates. And while I know it's not really tropical or an extreme dry heat there right now, my thoughts actually turn to Albuquerque, and especially bow and arrow brewing. The brewery just celebrated its fifth anniversary under the same circumstances that we've all been under over the last year, but they had some fun with it. And rather than let the pandemic get them down, they're adapting quick and planning for the future. Shiloh Shepard is the co-founder of the brewery and my guest today. Before she got into beer, she worked in finance, helping entrepreneurs establish loans that would help fund their dreams. And in her words, she wanted to follow them and do what she loved. And beer was it. The brewery makes the most of the area that it's in and draws from family history, especially from her partner, Missy Begay, who is the brewery's creative director. The beers are put together by Ted O'Hanlon, who worked in breweries in Wyoming before going to the Southwest. Like you, I'm longing to travel again. And so that's where I started, by asking how things are in New Mexico right now. Here's our conversation. What's it like in New Mexico right now, beer-wise? Beer-wise, there's still a lot of um, innovations and seasonal releases. Um, We're still seeing a demand for, you know, the newest thing. Um, I was having a conversation with someone else in the industry recently, and she had been of the opinion or had read that, you know, I think within this time of the pandemic, we were seeing a resurgence in kind of more of the staple year-round beers but Mm -hmm. to be honest we still see a big demand for the newest hazies the newest pastry stouts the newest um you know pastry sours um so we're still um (laughs) there's a lot of new beers we're still you know keeping the customers are still keeping us on our toes in terms of you know coming out with things that are new and exciting so and i think that's really good for us and our team too um just to continue to push the envelope and, you know, have fun with what we do. Has the pandemic complicated that though? I mean, for us, I would say um, that was something we were doing pre-pandemic, but I think even more so now, I mean, pre-pandemic, we had the benefit of having this beautiful tap room, you know, that we had carefully curated um, and experience around our product. So then we were just sort of left with, well, our beer is great. And now we have to find a way to, you know, communicate and provide cues through like social media about what this, what this beer is about. So it's, it's definitely challenged us to rethink how and um, how we, talk about our beers, the types of beers we're developing, um, which I think is in large part 
um, been good for us. It's been a good challenge in terms of having to really think about what's the pipeline of beers coming up and, um, you know, what are we going to do differently in this? You know, we have a number of series that mm -hmm. we um, innovate and have different uh, variations of over time. And that's really in, in response to customers' demand for something new and different. Um, so we have taken our own approach in in addressing this, but you know, we're in terms of now, you know, that we're canning, we're also having to be, develop and tweak labels. So just thinking through how we best approach those variations um, in a way that still makes financial sense. So it's 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 always a balance between the two, but I feel like we're striking that balance. You have one of the more visually striking tap rooms that I've seen. And you mentioned well curated and there's a lot of thought that went into the visual aesthetics of your location. And it's not just the exposed Edison bulbs and here's our you know, metal stools and our concrete countertop, like that kind of thing that you get at a lot of, uh, uh, at a lot of breweries these days. Like it, it was a real experience um, to, to be at your brewery. And so when COVID came, and your tap room was shut down. Where did you start to give people at least a similar experience when they couldn't actually be in the place you wanted them to be? Yeah, that was that was tough. Um, <laughs> and There's, I will yeah. say, you know, we like you said. Um, we were very thoughtful about how we designed and even how we, you know, set out tables and did placement of things, but also in some of the, um, the items that you'll see kind of tucked here and there, it's still sort of like an orga organic farmhouse, but there's influences in there that have meaning. And one of those influences when you first enter is this bust of a buffalo um, and I would say in, when COVID hit, the pandemic was upon us, you know, the mantra that my grandpa used to repeat to us was to be like the buffalo in that when encountering the fiercest storms and blizzards, they turn and they face a storm. Um, and that just rang through my mind at the time in 2020 presented challenges that um, I'm proud to say our team stepped up to and took on pretty decisively. So we were constantly changing to and adapting with public health orders and just doing our best, you know, to keep up and be mindful of safety. Um, but when it came to translating some of that special experience to, you know, a virtual place, um, that that was something that, you know, it's taken time and it's continued to evolve. Um, we looked for partnerships with other businesses. So one example, um, there's this local entrepreneur, she makes these beautiful charcuterie and grazing boards. So just from a visual standpoint too, like you look at her Instagram, it's, it's eye-catching, it's gorgeous, it's very thoughtfully um, prepared. Do, do, do you um, have the Instagram it, off the top of your head? Because I'm sure people it's are... Pic yeah, it's called Picnic NM. Um, so what we've done um, is periodically we'll partner with her. So she gets, we'll promote her and push people to her site and they prepay for their picnic boards and so we usually do this on occasion on Fridays and she'll then 
um, we'll tell her which one of our beers that, you know, we're really excited about. So she'll then on her social media kind of put together a board that pairs with that special beer. So we're kind of, you know, we're supporting each other. It's very synergistic and it's very on brand with us. So we're creating this really fun um, Friday evening experience with people. Yeah. <laughs> it's a small thing, but it can really brighten someone's day. It's something that people look forward to. Um, so we like to do some of those things. We just celebrated our fifth year anniversary mm -hmm. uh, two weekends ago. Um, and we did uh, like a virtual DJ. First of all, um, <laughs> Ted and I talked about just kind of some reflections. And Ted's your brewer. You know, Ted O'Hanlon is our head brewer. Yep. And so he and I kind of talked about just reflecting a bit on the last year and some of the big changes that have transpired. Um, and then we rolled into a virtual DJ. <laughs> so that was fun. And we weren't sure like exactly how that would go, but it's like, you know what, this is our fifth year anniversary and we're just going to do what we can to celebrate this occasion. Um, so that was really fun. Uh, I think people felt engaged and it was on Instagram live. So people could comment and like, and we were commenting back. So it felt engaging. Um, so those are some of the things we've just challenged ourselves with, you know, how do we engage folks um, while, you know, trying to maintain this sense of community and connection. Um, and then along the way, Ted and I are getting more comfortable with doing like videos. So we've got our, our um, Instagram videos. We'll just update folks on what's going on. Um, Ted will talk about beers. You know, I'll talk about some special releases. So it was more of just like being very mindful of sharing updates and kind of contextualizing um, over video. And so we've gotten some really positive engagement with that. And that's been, you know, a big part of it. And then also just since we pivoted during the pandemic and put our first offsite taproom on hold um, to buying a canning line, We've then been able to translate some of our, um, you know, ideas of branding and aesthetic and what bow and arrow is about to beer labels. And yeah. those have been really well received. And I think just create this or just elevate, I think, the experience around our beer when people see it and they're excited about them. Um, so that's been the other way. That we've approached it. I, I wanted to back up just a little bit though, because with the tap room being closed, obviously you could do beer sales to go. Um, and without a canning line, I mean, you were relying a lot on kegged beer. You were talking about giving people what they were asking for of what's new, what's exciting, um, you know, hazy pastry sours, etc. cetera. Um, without having the tap room where choice is, preferred i think for for most people who walk through a door um and having to sort of limit or i guess more narrowly define what it was you were going to offer what got left behind oh, let's see um we definitely have narrowed our scope a bit but having the canning line has been helpful um pre-canning line, we did find ourselves in a situation where, you know, we have a 15 barrel system. We had fermenters and brights that just had beer 
in them and there were kegs already with beer in them and just you know we just didn't have the means to move it so um we definitely had to narrow our scope in terms of what we were offering so some of the seasonals um you know some of them that we weren't sure if they would do so well like we had a blonde fairly recently and we were excited about it but it just wasn't <laughs> moving at a rate that could justify it yeah. so you know, we've kind of had to fall back on what's tried and true. Um, so we have focused a lot on, you know, on the hazies, on the pastry stouts, those things. Um, so that's part of it. You know, we have 16 taps. And I think we have at any one time these days, at least two or three that are just open. Okay. Um, so we are being more thoughtful about what we're producing um, and in that line, like I was saying, it's still important that we are creating new things for our customers, but also for the sake of our team's, you know, creativity. Um, so we, one of the things Ted and I were just talking about this morning was we're going to be, we have a one barrel pilot system, but we didn't actually have um, a fermenter like a temperature controlled one. So we're going to be purchasing one of those as well so that we can turn out, you know, a couple kegs of something interesting and new yeah. um, and not be saddled with, you know, entire 13 to 15 barrel batch. It's so interesting that you talk about creativity during the pandemic because I, I over the, the course of the last year or so, I mean, I guess it's been 11 months now that we've been in this and the conversations that I've had with brewers, brewery owners have either been, yes, we're making the most of this and we're finally doing the things that we always wanted to do or just didn't have the time to do, or it's the opposite where people are just grinding it out and doing whatever they can to keep their nose above the, the financial waterline. Um, and there's not the innovation, you know, uh, it's almost like a year mm -hmm. of creativity, you know, has been lost. Um, are there things that you're grateful for that you've been able to, to focus on that maybe you wouldn't have been able to? Yeah. Well, first of all, the canning line, yeah. I mean, that was something that we've always talked about it, it, as being an eventuality. Um, so this accelerated that decision and it's been so good for us. Um, so that, and then, you know, I can't help but say I'm so thankful for my team. Um, and I've done my best to keep things upbeat um, because, you know, this is, it's been a marathon of a year. Yeah. So, you know, my job is to make sure that my team has the resources to be successful. And I think part of that is also creating an environment where they feel, you know, like they're um, contributing. It's not just nose to the grindstone. Yes, we've been working hard, but I think it's so important that we balance that with you know, some creative freedoms, something to look forward to. Um, so I think, you know, I'm very appreciative of their willingness to roll with it and step up and, you know, take these quick pivots with us, um, with me. And, you know, when we pivoted away from the tap room and suddenly like we're moving forward with the canning line, people were on board and we understood the importance of it. Um, so I just think that, that, um, the belief they've had in me in these tough decisions that have been made and we've had to continue to make um, 
we've been a very cohesive team and very supportive of one another. So I'm, you know, by far <laughs> most thankful for that, for their, you know, belief um, in me and our path forward. So, you know, that's, that's the main thing that comes to mind. Yeah. I had somebody describe it to me recently as uh, doing battle and, you know, these yeah. are, these are the people in the foxhole with you. Absolutely. I want to switch gears a little bit. What were some of the early beers that got you interested in your eventual career track to joining this industry? Yeah, well, I I always talk about my first Hefeweizen, <laughs> which was, it's a funny, you know, funny thing to look back on. Um, that was one, and I knew very little about the brewing process, so it was sort of mind-blowing at the time for me to um, learn that some of these flavors and aromas were derived from yeast. So Banana, that kind of clove, sparked, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, like, whoa, wow, this is amazing. And so just <laughs> that kind of sparked that. Um, and then eventually, like I, in terms of like, I'm a huge Saison fan, but in terms of domestic producers years back, you know, I love Funk Works. They were, you know, I would go out of my way to travel up um, to, to their top Colorado, when we were in Denver. Yeah. yeah, when we were in Denver. Um, so that was a beer I've always like really loved. Um, and then early on, some of, you know, the, um, I'm blanking. Um, crooked stave and they sure. were at the time you know just focused purely on brett beers and i was a big fan of the wild and, and sour beers as well and so just getting really inspired by what they were doing um and then eventually a year after we opened i got in touch with ted and both of us were very excited about pursuing wild and sour beers um and have like really taken off with that since he's been with us the last four years. Yeah. Yeah. But those were two that really influenced me through three. Are you guys making a Hefeweizen right now? We are not, but we do. It's seasonal. Okay. It's, it, it's just, it's such a style that I think was so impactful and I, I can continue to be so impactful for so many people, but it is so hard to come across. I think these days, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it, there's, I mean, there's one big, like everybody in Albuquerque, like the main, the Hefeweizen everybody knows here is La Cumbres. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, you know, that's kind of the standard here in Albuquerque. Okay. We don't get that where I live. So yeah. I figured. <laughs> but would it be weird then? I mean, if, if I, I've often been curious about when there is a larger brewery that has a dominant style. What some of the, not pitfalls, but some of the, the, I guess the thoughts that go into, well, should we put something like that out on the market or are we even going to be able to, you know, even if the liquid is, is amazing, are we even going to be able to get on people's radar? Is, is, is that mm -hmm. something that has that, crossed your mind? Yeah, that can be. Um, and we don't necessarily, I wouldn't say we necessarily brew things to style either. Mm -hmm. um, but I know some people really care about, you know, whether a brewery has one hardware for a beer. Um, 
so, you know, there's been occasions where I'm like, oh, well, you know, so-and-so, they just recently got a gold for this particular beer and, you know, we'll, we'll just let them bask in that and we're going to do something different. Um, so there's, I don't know, sometimes that's part of the thought process, but I don't know, we always like to put our own spin on things. Um, so that's really what, why, you know, where what, we try to differentiate ourselves. What's a good example of a beer that you all do where you try to put your own stamp on something? Yeah, so one of the more recent releases um, is our Curio series. And the Curio series is our Hooter aged series. Um, so we have a, a single, it's about 30 barrel um, Hooter. And this was a project we started, oh man, it was probably almost a year to get that whole culture going. And we've just released at the end of last year, our first um, just straight curio, you know, no additives or adjuncts to it. Um, so that one was one that we had an eye on doing something unique and the variants of it have been ingredients that are indigenous to the Southwest. Um, one that so, you know, things that are indigenous to this area that have a special sense of place or that we were directly involved with. So one of the variants was with Neo-Mexicanus hops that we foraged ourselves <laughs> out in the mountains of New Mexico. And it's the only hop indigenous to North America. Yeah. And um, so that was one example we've also done um, a variant of our curio beer with foraged Navajo tea. Um, and then a third one, we sourced sumac berries from the Navajo Nation's tribal enterprise, which is called Navajo Agricultural Products Industries. Mm -hmm. um, so those are some things, at least in the, the wild and sour space um, that we've done that people have, I mean, it sort of captured the imagination. I mean, we posted pictures on social media of the hops growing, you know, wild and um, backpacks full of them. And they were just kind of, um, that's cool. They just totally capture the imagination. And cause everything I've read about wild New Mexicanus hops was that they were small and kind of, you know, just not very conducive to brewing, but these were big and lush and just like far exceeded our expectations for it. Really? So that's a really, yeah, I, they're on our social media okay. if you want to look at the pictures, but you can see for scale, like they're in our hands and they were just big lush cones. Um, huh. So that was one example. And then um, one of our year rounds is denim tucks, which is our American pills with um, lightly roasted New Mexico blue corn. And that one has done really well for us. Um, and it was interesting. We've had that beer for a while, but once we put it in a can, and wrapped um, an imagery around it, people were like, oh, I love your new beer. And it was interesting because we have had it for a while, but once it was in a can, it's like it was, it took on this whole new identity and um, people just didn't really notice it in large part before. So that was kind of interesting as well. Well, you're also able to get in front of new people now, thanks to the canning line, I imagine, right? right? So when people came through- Absolutely. I, I'm sure that they were drinking it, right? 
Yeah, I mean, it always did well for us here in the tap room, but it was just interesting to have people, you know, think that it was a brand new thing. <laughs> but you are brewing with ingredients, you know, Southwestern ingredients that don't show up in beer a lot. And I know from previous conversations right. with you, you know, the specialness of, of, of some of this, you know, I mean, even Neo-Mexicanas, yeah. I remember when that hop was, you know, quote unquote rediscovered, um, a few years ago, maybe God, 15 years ago now. Um, and there was a little bit of excitement around it and then it immediately died off and, you know, cause there just wasn't enough of it or, you know, it just wasn't mm-hmm. capturing the imagination of, um, you know, of, of brewers today or consumers today. Um, Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase this. When you're thinking about ingredients to use, indigenous mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to the Southwest, where okay. do you start or where are you looking for, uh, for inspiration? Honestly, we start with just looking at what is in our backyards and what are these things that people take for granted? Um And I, as I mentioned, I'm from North Dakota, but my partner, she's Navajo and she's from this area. So it's been interesting to get an introduction to things that were like everyday foods, like, or drinks even. So Navajo tea was one that they would have, you know, she's telling me she had these great memories of her aunt making, you know, having a big orange cooler with ice full of refreshing Navajo tea when they'd be out in the canyon. Um, so we're really curious about using that. And even sumac berries, sumac berries have been used as a refreshing sort of like lemonade-like drink. So we started with just looking like what is around us. Um, and one of the other beers that we released a couple batches of that was received well um, was called Sunbloom, which is our Saison. And the first iteration of it, we had used prickly pear puree, June berries and Sonoran white wheat from Arizona. Cool. So that one also really did well and captured people's imaginations. Um, so that was, that was really fun. And so we just continue to, again, just look at what's around us because again, as we know, we can take things for granted, you know, if it's around us all the time. Um, and we've even, we just released our first hard sparkling water Um which was an interesting... Are, are you not calling it seltzer? No, we're just calling it hard sparkling water. Okay. It's it's, it's it's more rustic, so it's not crystal clear. It's got some color to it. But we also were challenging ourselves with, well, we've never done this before. Um, but we think, you know, we want to offer something that will appeal to maybe a customer who doesn't find something on the menu that appeals mm-hmm. um but we also wanted to stay sort of within our brand and what we're about um so we released the first version of it's called desert water um like a, a couple weeks ago actually in cans and it also has prickly pear juniper berries um and we added lemon peel to sort of really brighten it up oh, so fun. that's been yeah that's been well received and we felt like kind of is on brand with what we're about is there uh, – there's obviously got to be a lot of education that goes into talking about some of the ingredients that you're using. You know, Navajo tea is, is – I, again, I, talking to you today from New Jersey, it's not necessarily something that is on my radar, 
you know, or you know, ever mm-hmm. has been. Um, mm-hmm. wh- what are the educational conversations that you're having with people, you know, before the tap room was closed, you know, when you were actually able to be face to face with folks? Oh yeah. We, I mean, definitely show people images of it. So social media will like for Navajo tea, I think we had posted, you know, a fistful, like a, basically a bouquet <laughs> of Navajo tea. So visually people could see it. And then we would, you know, educate our servers and have on our menus kind of descriptions of its flavor profile. Um, so that was really important, just showing, you know, those visuals and showing kind of where it can be found out in nature. I think creating those connections is really important. Mm-hmm. Um, but also just reiterating, like, you know, uh, that it's essentially a taste of the Southwest. So you may not be familiar with it, but if you're curious and you want something that's unique to this area, this is something you should absolutely try. Um, so I think that's part of it. And then, um, yeah, just, and just sharing, you know, how is it used? How was it used um, generally to create some context, I think is important as opposed to just posting, hey, we're releasing this beer with Navajo tea. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just contextualizing. And I think storytelling is a really important part of it. Before you got into beer, uh, you were working in investments and you were uh, helping folks, uh, I, I think as you, you put it to me once, uh, pursue their own dream. Um, and then eventually you decided, well, you wanted to do this for yourself. It's, you know, one thing to help, you know, other folks, but it's, you know, important to, to, to sort of follow, follow your own path. Can you be in the beer industry these days, or if we're thinking about you know, the, 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 the beer industry these days. And, and I guess the, the context for this is I've been thinking a lot about how after the great recession of 2008, there are a lot of people who were shaken up and, uh, hurt financially or, uh, questioned their life choices or, you know, decided to, to, to really sort of seize the day. And we saw a post brewery, uh, we saw a post recession boom with breweries, um, you know, in, in, in 11, 12, 13. And I'm curious if, if, if we're going to see that again, and I'd, I'd like to think that we, that we would, but having worked with a lot of entrepreneurs in the past, is there something that somebody needs inside of them, like in their soul, in their, in their business pursuits to really make a strong go of this? Yes. You have to be tenacious you have to have a mindset where if you can't get through something, you've got to figure out how to go around it, underneath it, through it. <laughs> so I think having that sort of um, resilience and uh, tenacity is absolutely critical. I mean, look at this time that we've been through in 2020. It's hard. There are so many difficult decisions that we all find ourselves having to make, whether it's personal and business, um, it's, it's been very challenging, but, you know, inevitably as an entrepreneur, um, and small business owner, you're, you're always facing challenges. So I think it's really important to be, um, I guess, you know, an analytical thinker have, you know, problem solving skills, um, and be very solutions oriented. I think if, if 
you're one to get caught up in dwelling on problems, I mean, that's extremely detrimental. You just got to keep finding a way to move forward. When you were um, uh, working in investments and having conversations you know, with with people who wanted to, to, to hang their own shingle, were there questions that you would ask to sort of gauge you know, what worked and what didn't? You know, I, I, I guess questions, you know, to sort of, you know, see if somebody had the right metal to make a, a proper go of it. I think just um, listening to them talk about the opportunity um, and their motivations was a good start, um, as well as objectives. But, you know, if it was, uh, you know, like a a product, for example, just listening to them talk about like what, you know, why it's important. Why does it matter? Um, what problem are they solving? I think that was the first place to start. Um, and just getting a sense for their comfort with, you know, not knowing everything, not having the answers, but demonstrating that, you know, through um, other experiences that they could find a way they could navigate it because, um, you know, running sort of any startup, regardless of the industry, you're going to just face so many different things that you've never seen before. So having the ability to reach out, find the resources, find the answers, um, and being, you know, I guess, humble enough to do that and not pretend you have all the answers. I think that's an attitude that was absolutely essential and was sort of a you know recurring theme with successful entrepreneurs. I don't know if I hear the word humble or the concept of humility enough in these conversations that I have with people. Huh. I like that. You obviously had a lot of experience before you started Bow and Arrow. Five years in, what do you wish you knew then that you know now? You know, I, I had experience, but it was always, you know, with other people. Like I didn't, sure, maybe we had a financial interest at stake, but it's just very different when your own house <laughs> and you've got personal guarantees and, you know, a second mortgage on your house. It's a very sort of different situation. But I mean, look in hindsight, um, in the beginning, I think, I allowed some things, you know, and some of these conversations are being had right now, um, just not only in the industry, but more broadly in terms of uh, structural racism, implicit bias, which um, is at play. I, I recognize that, but sometimes, you know, as, as a woman, as a person of color, um, we tend to undervalue, you know, what we bring to the table. And so, um, I guess in hindsight, I, I had the tenacity to move forward and, you know, I was determined to make bow and arrow a reality, but I think I, you know, I was like also just, um, maybe unsure, like, can I, can I really do this? And it's not helpful when, you know, you ex interact with other people who also question your role, your position and whether you're like really capable, um, so in hindsight, you know, I'm like, I, I could, I, I wish I had even a little more confidence because, you know, you think you have to reach out 
to certain people or have other people involved to be viewed as, you know, legit. Um, but I guess, you know, in hindsight, I realized no, I was fully capable and I have done this. And, you know, I, I think just having that confidence um, in myself that, you know, I have now just as a result of experience and having weathered lots of things <laughs> over the last five years. And um, what I hope is coming out of the pandemic um, in a position of strength. Um, I think that, you know, has also, I've just proven a lot to, to myself through that now looking back. Um, I mean, over the last, certainly the last year and, you know, with, with last summer, um, uh, as, as well, uh, where, you know, a lot of the (sighs) simmering race issues in the country, um, really reached a, a, a new boiling point again. Um, and, you know, the industry, the beer industry uh, was again reckoning with proper ways forward and, and meaningful ways forward. Um, you mentioned, you know, some, some of these, these, these roadblocks that, 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 you, that you had early on or conversations or, you know, barriers that, that, that you had. Um, have, have you seen any, meaningful improvement over these last couple of months? And I know that's a very short period of time and like real work is going to take a long time, but are there any glimmers of hope or have things just continued on? I would say, I mean, just having these conversations because a lot of these things were always just beneath the surface. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, you see comments or things here and there, um, which could sometimes be disappointing, obviously, but now the fact that there's actually like very open and honest and raw conversations happening, I think that's um, that's definitely positive to create some awareness um, and to actually have people listening to you know your perspective because I think there's a lot of um, denial that um, racism or privilege even exists there's still that. So the fact that these conversations are, are being had and perspectives are being shared and listened to um, on platforms where, you know, people under of underrepresented groups typically weren't really invited. I think that's, I think that's really positive. Still a lot of work to be done. Um, yeah, absolutely. More conversations to be had, certainly. The- yeah. And I think one thing I, I will say is, yeah. um, these are important conversations, but it's a careful, it's a careful balance because, you know, being someone who has experienced some different, like not positive things, um, just being asked to like, Hey, can you be on this panel and talk about it in the sort of emotional side of having to revisit all of that is taxing. So I think, also just being mindful, like, yes, it's important to have these conversations, but it should be, you know, thought about how to have these discussions and share this information and in a way that, you know, doesn't just put someone on the spot, which is, I mean, just being mindful of that, I think it's really important. As we think about moving forward and you're saying coming out of this a little bit stronger, um, 
it's been a whipsaw couple of weeks for you, right? Um, your state was in that color-coded system of what could be open and what couldn't, and you were red, yes. and then you just flipped to yellow, um, and I guess is hoping for an eventual green if we're doing a stoplight, I guess, um, a traffic light. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't quite know how, how your state is doing it. It could be, you know, red, yellow, blue for, for all I know. But um, uh, but you're in the yellow phase and it happened a lot sooner than you thought. Yes. Um, you know, we I mentioned our tap room being closed in the inside since mid-March of last year. And while um, there was a point at, at some time later last year where this was before this color-coded metric system where we were allowed to open at 25%, but just given the numbers, I was not comfortable opening. So we remained closed um, until recently where the state had adopted this new framework, which I was a lot more comfortable with. But I really, you know, for Bernalillo, we're located in, in Albuquerque, which is in the county of Bernalillo. And so we're kind of the biggest metro area here in New Mexico. And I just wasn't confident that the numbers were going to improve so quickly. And then suddenly they did. So back on the 10th of February, our county moved from the yellow status, um, which meant for us in terms of our operations that we couldn't have in inside sales or customers on premise inside. And we were limited to to-go sales and 25% of our patio um, capacity. So that was that's how we've been operating um, for a while. So suddenly on the 10th, we moved to yellow status, um, which meant that we could operate at 75% of outdoor and 25% inside. Wow. Um, and just, yeah, so that was huge. And having been closed for a year, I mean, it, suddenly we were scrambling and we had been working on a reopening plan in terms of our protocols, policies, sanitation practices. Um, so all of that, but it was literally a matter of moving things out of the tap room because <laughs> at our, at our level of growth, there was just, you know, pallets of bottles, you know, from our, our wild and sour program that we're conditioning. <laughs> There's kegs everywhere. And we're like, oh my gosh, this looks like a warehouse. Yeah. Um, so we I've, just, I've heard like, similar things from people saying like, I, I hope they don't open us up too soon because, you know, we've moved a <laughs> living room set into our, into our tap room that is not for public use. Yeah. Exactly. That's, that's the situation we found ourselves in. Um, but we were all, I think as a team, um, ready to open, ready to, you know, move forward. So last week on Monday, I think we had our team meeting and then we just started moving things and clearing things out and making it look like a tap room again. So, um, so those were all at play and we opened our tap room for the first time last Friday on the 19th. What kind of reception um, did it, you get? It was, I mean, there were people ready to come in before we opened the doors. Um, so that was, that was great. People um, were mindful of our policies and the way we're doing things. We had people just telling us they appreciated the measures we were taking. So that felt really good. And the fact that it coincided with basically our fifth year anniversary was really nice. Um, so, so far, so good. We've had our first weekend of reopening and um, things are running smoothly so far. As we think about people getting shots in the arm and uh, 
things reopening again and, and, and life sort of getting back to normal. Uh, the New York Times had an article over the weekend of, you know, is there a boom on the way? And, you know, a lot of economists seem to think that if the economy can recover pretty well, uh, people are going to start to travel again. They're going to basically catch up on a on a missed year uh, of life full of experiences. And I know it's been tough for a lot of small breweries in this last year of keeping the lights on and, you know, maybe having to let people go or, um, mm-hmm. you know, really sort of changing up business plans a little bit. But um, are you feeling bullish about the future and sort of keen to ramp up growth for for the brewery? I am. Um, I, I definitely see and hear, you know, about the pent up demand. People are like, oh, I can't wait till I can have hobbies again and go out and um, experience things. So I think there is a lot of that um, that will sort of be unleashed once, you know, things um, start opening up and people are feeling a higher level of safety. Um, you know, New Mexico is doing really well as a state in terms of vaccine administration. Um, so that's also looking good for us. And, um, you know, I don't just feel bullish, like those aren't just words. I'm actually now, um, moving forward with our first offsite tap room. Um, that's been on ice since, you know, pre pandemic, but I'm feeling, you know, very optimistic about its success in a new market. It'll be up in the four corners and, you know, we're investing in increasing our production capacity. So that's also something we're really excited about. And after seeing a few months of, you know, basically brewing at capacity, um, you know, I, I do have confidence that things are going to pick up and people are going to be ready to go out again and have these experiences that I think we do a really good job at delivering. A year from now, <laughs> which, you know, I, I, again, I, I'm not really in the business of, uh, of of predicting all of these things. But a year ago, I don't know if we would have been having this 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 conversation um, in, in quite the same way. But if we're a year from now, what do you want to look around and see? I want to see um, people out again, um, enjoying our spaces, um, not being fearful <laughs> of of each other, of you know a a the COVID um, virus. Uh, you know, because it's interesting just thinking about now how we perceive different situations you know when I see like I don't know I think at home we were watching like some old concerts Mm -hmm. and just thousands of people in a stadium and you know I I definitely take pause and look at it differently than I did but um and that's it's kind of sad you know that you're sort of ambivalent about these things but also at the same time like I'm I'm excited and ready to get to that point and hopefully in a year from now we will be where we will be comfortable going to a movie you know yeah or or being close to like at someone at the next table um yeah i think it's going to take a little bit of time for 
you know, for any of us to sort of feel that way. Like it's like it's just like the whole idea of personal contact right now with people outside of my pod, which is just my my immediate family, um, seems weird in my brain. Like it, did, it didn't it didn't take long for that to become pretty well conditioned that you know hugging somebody is weird. Totally, yeah. So now I don't remember if your question is what was my <laughs> hope or what was my expectation, but I, I was more talking about yeah. I'm hopeful and looking forward to you know reaching that point in oh. the future. Okay. And what do you want everybody to be drinking? Hefeweizen? <laughs> no. Um, our denim, our... <laughs> Boy, that was, that was a decisive and dismissive no. Um, well, I could feel you know... your eyes rolling while you said that. That was just, yeah. Okay. Fine. I was just trying to do a callback. Yeah, I was, I was, trying, to, I was trying to be well, nice there. Let's, let's call it back to denim tuck. Okay. Yeah. All right. It's super crushable. Fine. We'll we'll put we'll put some some coins in the coffer and we'll we'll call it a day <laughs> with with denim tucks. Um thanks for doing this. Thanks for thanks for being on the show. Thanks for sharing your expertise and your your history and everything that's happening in in your great state. I'm looking forward to being down there again and 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 having pints, I hope. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's always good to talk to you, John. That's Shiloh Shepard of Bow and Hour Brewing, and my thanks to her, and I'm going to encourage you to stock up on those cans when you can. I've enjoyed what I've had in the past, and I'm looking forward to more. Where do you miss drinking? What's first on your list when you get the two shots in the arm? Tell me about it. You can email me, John Hall, it's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L, at BeerEdge.com, or join in on Twitter at John underscore Hall. You should also check out BeerEdge.com for articles, podcasts, and to sign up for the newsletter. And if you want to help support journalism in the beer space, please drop Liz Melby a line. She's at Liz at BeerEdge.com, and she'll get you set up with all of our advertising information, including our very affordable rates. Steal This Beer is a podcast that I host every Monday. You should check that out. The BYO Nano Podcast is another, and it comes out on the 15th of every month. And This Week in Roush Beer is also now a thing. It's on Facebook. You can just search the name. But it's also on Twitter and Instagram at TWRoushBeer. It's a fun community that cares about smoked beers. Please come join us. You know the deal. Nate Schweber, he does our music. Jeff Quinn designed our logo. And I'm John Hall. New episodes of this show release every Wednesday. And that's when I'll be back again to drink beer and to think beer.